Welcome to Leading Simple with Rusty George. Our goal is to make following Jesus and leading others a bit more simple. Here's your host, Rusty George. Hey there, thanks for listening to Leading Simple. I'm your host, Rusty George. Boy, do we have a great conversation for you today. I get to sit down and talk with Kay Warren. Kay is known for many reasons, but primarily the wife of Rick Warren, larger-than-life pastor of America, incredible personality, author, just an, an unbelievable power couple here. But Kay is phenomenal in her own right. And if you've ever felt like you are in somebody else's shadow, goodness, she knows what that's like. And she had to discover who she was and what she wanted to do and who she wanted to become. And also dealing with all kinds of of pain in her life. And I think you're really going to be blessed by today's conversation. As we continue to talk about mental health on the podcast, Kay's going to give us some great insight into that. Well, this month and the next couple of months, we're working with Compassion International. Compassion has helped 2 million kids in sponsorship. They've partnered with over 80,000 international churches, 65 years of serving people. And when you sponsor a child, it goes to meet their needs medically, spiritually, physically, and educationally. In fact, we had a conversation recently with an adult who was a sponsored child in the Philippines through Compassion, and she tells her story. You're going to want to make sure you hear that. We'll link to that in the show notes, and also it's on the podcast site, wherever you get your podcast, the bonus episode, a conversation with a Compassion-sponsored child. If you've ever wondered, does that money really go to them? Does it really help them? You will be convinced after hearing from one of these sponsored children and the impact it's had on her entire life. So we're working to sponsor 1,000 kids. There's been a huge backlog of unsponsored kids through the COVID season. We want to help bridge that gap. So you can help out by going to Compassion.com slash Rusty, and you can sponsor a child. Love for you to use that tagline there compassion.com slash rusty so that we can keep track of how many kids we're sponsoring as we press on to sponsor 1,000 kids. Well, today we got a great conversation. Can't wait for you to hear it. It's going to be one that you're going to probably have to take some notes on and you're going to want to share it with a friend. So here we go. My conversation with Kay Warren. Well, Kay Warren, thank you for joining the podcast. And uh, boy, you have become a friend over the years uh, because of circumstances neither of us wanted to experience, but your voice in helping people deal with mental illness and death by suicide and so many other things has been such a, a help for so many people and such a blessing. But I, I want to go way back and I want to talk about life. Uh, I guess we should say BR before Rick. Okay. People know you as Rick Warren's wife. My, my wife loves to be known as Rusty George's wife. I, I want to know about you before Rick. So tell us about your life and where you, where, where you came from, where you grew up, and then we'll get into everything else later. Yeah. Well, everybody has a story and, um, right. um I, I was a pastor's daughter. My dad was pastor. Both Rick and I grew up in ministry homes. So I grew up in a ministry home. I married a minister. I have, you know, uh, my son-in-law's a minister, my brother-in-law, my nephew. I mean, it's like I'm surrounded by people in ministry. I, I really don't know what it's like to not live in a ministry home. Um, and, you know, both the good and the bad. My dad was pastor in San Diego in, in a pretty conservative, in fact, very conservative, bordering on fundamental uh, Baptist churches. 
And um, so that, of course, that shaped me. Um, but but my parents lived really, I'd say, consistent lives. So it wasn't hard to be their daughter. Mm. They, I, they didn't live one way at home and another way at church. And so um, there was a, a consistency and a congruency to their lives that made ministry attractive to me. So when you know, I met Rick and he was going to go into ministry. That was very exciting to me. I mean, I, I was very comfortable with that. Uh, so there's, that's kind of the good part. Um, but it's also, you know, the painful part. I was um, sexually assaulted in my dad's church um, by the son of the church janitor mm. when I was uh, about five. And that, that young man later was sent away to the California Youth Authority for pedophilia. So, um, you know, there's, there's, there's some scars, you know, mm. uh, there that also shaped me, shaped my story. Um, I'd say I grew up with a pretty legalistic faith that didn't talk about sex or sexuality. And so, and I certainly didn't tell my parents because I just remember being like, well, we, I probably shouldn't talk about that. I don't even remember. I was so young. It's like, I didn't consciously say, oh, I'm not going to tell my parents. But but all of that then shaped me, shaped my faith, my expectations of myself, of marriage, of what it meant to be a Christian, what you could and couldn't talk about in church. And hmm. so there was wonderful things that were about my upbringing. And then there were some parts that were also very painful, but together, you know, they, they shaped who I am today. So how did you come to the courage to begin talking about that? And was that something that in your dating relationship with Rick, I mean, at what point do you start talking about that? Well, we did. Were there other? Okay. Okay. No, I, we didn't. I, in fact, I pretty well, um, I think as is common to a lot of people who experience trauma, especially at a very young age, it, it can just kind of be filed away in your mind. Um, it's not mm. like sitting out on the front burner and it wasn't for me. Um, it was actually when I was about 19, I think we were engaged and sitting probably in a sociology class in college. And it's like that, that repressed memory, all of a sudden something triggered in class, a conversation, and that memory dropped into my brain with crystal clear detail. And um, I remember sitting in that class, just kind of going, what, mm. what, but I, I didn't know what to do with it and continued with my response, trauma response of just trying to bury it, minimize it. It's not a big deal. Um, I think I told Rick about it before we got married, but I wasn't emotionally reacting. And so he didn't know what to do with this. And so mm -hmm. he just thought, well, if it's not a big deal to her, it's probably not a big deal. And of course it was a really big deal and it did affect our marriage and it right out of the gate. And it took um, probably a year or so being married before we could go to a Christian counselor who helped us begin to start dealing with, um, you know, the effects of that uh, on me and in our marriage. But listen, that was in the 70s and only really weird, wacky, messed up people went to counselors. Right. People like us who were in ministry did not go. So it was it. It, it meant that the pain had finally exceeded the the fear of being uh, considered a bad Christian. Mm -hmm. You know, before we went and got got help. That does seem to be. It's like a a, a, a scale or something. There, it has to tip in the way of yeah. the pain is worse than the fear. That's a great yeah. great insight there. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of counseling. I've had several counselors over my life. Um, I know you are a fan as well. You've probably dealt with a lot of counselors. 
um, whether you've referred people or had people in the church or seen them yourself, how do you find a good counselor? And are there specialties you look for? Um, and are there red flags? Uh, tell us about that. Well, that's like about a three-hour conversation, right? <laughs> um, yes, I, I'd say trial and error. Um, recommendate, you know, trial and error because you're not going to necessarily click with the first um, therapist counselor that you sit down with. There, and it's important to have that um, trust. And and I think I call it chemistry because if you don't feel like you can share your heart, your soul, what's happened to you with this person, you're not going to benefit from it very much. So mm-hmm. that's why it's trial and error. It's almost like going to a restaurant. You can go to a restaurant that people recommend. And for you, you hated it, man, the, the food was dry and it was late and the service was terrible. But that doesn't mean you stop going to restaurants. You just find another one. So um, you can hear recommendations from other people. I know Focus on the Family has a, a like a Christian counselor locator on their site. On my website, we have um, you know, again, a locator and there's lots of places, referral from friends, referral from, you know, somebody in your church who's been, but don't just give up. If the first time you talk to somebody, it feels either weird or it feels like, no, this, I just don't really, I don't really click with this person. Yeah. Right. Well, that's, that's good insight there. And just because they say they're a Christian counselor, I guess we're on audio. Nobody can see my air quotes right now, but uh, <laughs> oh, they can hear it in uh, your voice. <laughs> yes, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are ascribing to Christian beliefs. So, uh, but but pursue that. And if you're a married couple, certainly go to that together and find you know find help. It's certainly out there now, and it's not near as taboo as it was then. No, yes. it's not. It's not as it's not the stigma even attached to it. And honestly, it it helps save our marriage. I completely attribute mm-hmm. um, the fact Rick and I are very very different people. Have dealt with a lot of, we had a lot of trauma um, for for in my life that we that we needed to navigate and manage and and heal. And um, so Christian counseling has been absolutely believe in it, support it. We've paid a lot of good money. I think my counselor <laughs> probably owns a small island somewhere in the uh, <laughs> some Greek island out there in the Mediterranean. It's called right. K, you know. <laughs> K Island. <laughs> yeah. What do you recommend for people that, okay, they've done the deep work, they've done the twice a week, once a week, whatever. And now, you know, they're 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 going along pretty well. How often do you do you do the tune up? Whenever it's needed. Yeah. I don't think there's a I don't think there's a prescribed time. I um, I think that you know yourself and you know when you're when you're slipping or when uh, maybe you hit a new bump in the road. You know because that's that's the that's the thing about healing is that most of the time, in my experience, um, God doesn't heal most of the time. He doesn't heal people outright of their emotional um, scars and wounds. Sometimes He does, and I think thank him for when he does that. It seems like in my experience, most people, it's a lifelong, it's part of your sanctification process. And which means it takes time. It's slow. It's you, you find healing or restoration in one part of your life. And then you face a new challenge or you go into a new decade and um, you're, you're Mm. facing new um, realities and the things that you dealt with 10 years ago and really were doing pretty well it's changed now. And so then you have to right. have to revisit that in that new stage and season of life. And yeah, mm. we, we like to think that it's all just going to happen quick and easy and it's, you know, done, yeah. put it away. And um, that's not been my experience. Healing, yeah. transformation, all that is usually a slower process. 
Right, right. Yeah, it's not near as microwave as we'd like. Yeah. Tell me about being, um, here you are, the, the a preacher's kid. Okay, your dad's a pastor, but you're also a pastor's wife's kid. Okay, so now you're uh, a pastor's wife. You're leading ministry as well. You guys are planting a church. How did you decide, I need to be different than I saw my mom? And how did you decide I need to be the same as I saw my mom be a pastor's wife? Mm, good question. You know, I think because I, as I said earlier, my parents really did live a consistent life. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to battle that discrepancy of um, of my parents talking one way, trusting God, praising God, you know, living with integrity at church and then living different at home. Mm. And uh, so that made that part easier. Those were things I wanted to emulate. I wanted to live in front of our kids and our church. I wanted to live a life of congruency. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw the benefit of, of that kind of freedom and of that kind of really, I think, powerful representation of God. Of, of God is congruent and consistent and and those who name his name need to be as well and that integrity and there was no my parents didn't didn't live a public life and then have private sin mm-hmm. and I learned mm-hmm. from them that I wanted to emulate that I wanted to make sure Rick and I both um, committed from the time we dated that we were going to um, live the same publicly and privately um, I've always said you're entitled to a private life but you're not entitled to private sin in the ministry. Mm. And um, so th- that was something both of our parents as, as couples in ministry modeled that, kept that. My um, my parents did have a very difficult time talking about uh, the real, like my dad went through a divorce before he went into ministry, but that was back in the forties before he even met my mom. Mm. But I never once heard my dad mention being divorced in the pulpit. He pretty much tried to keep that um, quiet. It was before he even became a Christian. Um, he never, anytime he ever preached a message on divorce, he never used his own life. Mm. Um, and so it was kind of compartmentalized. There was nothing, there was not a lack of integrity, but there was just the shame of what will people think of me if they know of what happened, you know, before I even became a Christian. Right. And um, so I decided that was not going to be for me. I, I couldn't do it that way. Um, I also, my dad uh, was a very, very proud man, and he really didn't know how to apologize. He was very loving, very kind, but his way of apologizing after, you know, maybe an argument or something, he would, I might be standing, I can visualize myself standing at the kitchen sink as a teenager washing dishes, and my dad you know, kind of coming up next to me and just kind of like bumping my my shoulder with his shoulder and like, hey, you know what you're doing? What I wanted was him to say, hey, I'm sorry, I, I lost my temper. Yeah. I, 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 I was under stress and man, I react, I overreacted. I'm really sorry. I never heard my dad do that. Mm-hmm. He did it in this other way, but, but there wasn't always the repair. Mm-hmm. And so I, as a parent, decided that I was going to lead with apologies with my children, that I was going to frequently and whenever, you know, whenever necessary, whenever I was wrong, I was going to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Please forgive me. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, there were things I took from, you know, my parenting model, both as leading in church and personal life. And there were some things that I thought, no, I think. I think there's another way, another way that's even healthier. That's so good. Such great insight. And I know that we have a lot of pastors that, that listen to this podcast and, uh, their wives as well. I, I, I'm really 
sensitive about this because I, I have a wonderful wife, but unfortunately, sometimes people just want to talk to me and she gets defined as the pastor's wife. Mm. What would you say to those pastor's wives out there that sometimes feel like they're in the shadow a little bit or they're defined as the, the wife of the pastor? Yeah, I think identity issues are are probably one of the top issues that can discourage people in ministry and even cause them eventually to leave. If, um, if identity isn't really settled and sure and secure. And I have I, more times than I could count, you know, been on the receiving end of, <clears throat> oh, you're, you're Rick Warren's wife or where's Rick? Oh, it's so nice to meet you. Where is Rick around? Is Rick around? As people scan, you know, the crowd to find him. I remember as a young uh, bride and it even started before we got married because Rick began preaching when he was in his teens. And I was very shy, very, very shy, very introverted and not particularly secure in um, I'm not nearly the confidence that I have today, <clears throat> but just can remember going to places and being elbowed, you know, as I'm trying to stand next to him, other people elbowing me out of the way to get to him. That didn't help my, my self-worth um, <laughs> views of myself. That, that only made it plummet worse. So it was something I had to deal with um, fairly early on. And as I said, it's come in stages. I think the early stages for me were um, re recognizing uh, that I was an ordinary person. I've always saw Rick as a superstar. He, he's just He's just bigger than life. He sucks the oxygen out of every room. It's it's his personality. It's, it's the way God's wired him. And so he can walk into a room and just all of a sudden, you know, all the oxygen is in, in embodied in him. And um, and I had to deal with the fact that he should have married somebody more like him. He shouldn't have married somebody who wanted to stand next to the potted plant and talk to one person. Um, and yet I had a very crucial moment um, soon after we started Saddleback where I would have been asked to lead a, a very small little Bible study. And I was crying as I was driving over to it, just completely deflated by how average I was, how ordinary I was, how not in the stratosphere with my husband. And um, and I turned on the radio and happened to be on a Christian radio station. And there was this song that probably most people aren't familiar with now, but but in this, but in 1980, this was a song and it was called Ordinary People. Yeah. And it went on to say, yeah. God chooses ordinary people who give choose to give him their all, no matter how small their all might seem to them. And it was a it was a life marker moment in which I mean I had to pull over and do business with God and just say, God, I'm sorry. You chose to make me an ordinary person. You could have made me somebody like Rick, but you made me, I'm, I'm kind of a garden variety daisy and, and he's this extravagant, you know, Lily. And, um, but you chose, this is the way you made me. And I give you back to me. I feel like I have a tuna fish sandwich. He's got salmon on rye, um, but I give you my life and you do with it as you will. And that I will now, I was 26 never forget that, shaped my ministry from there. There was that moment. And then as his notoriety and acclaim grew, which it did pretty rapidly, um, my patience, I, I, I began to think, well, when is it my turn? Mm. When is it my turn? Um, I have things to say. I, I, I have opinions. I, I've got stuff to share. When When is it my turn? Okay, okay, he's he's got his thing, but when is it my turn? 
And I really did develop some jealousy, some envy. Um, you know, it moved from the, oh, I'm glad for Rick to what about me? Mm-hmm. And um, and it just became this thing that grated on me. And then I read, you know, I felt I was I, a passage of scripture that <laughs> when I read it, I had to laugh. It was just ironic. First Samuel, I think it's 18, seven, where, you know, um, Saul and David have been in battle and they come back and the women are singing this song. Saul has slain his thousands. David has slain his 10,000s. And I'm like, I'm Saul. I'm yeah. Saul. I've slain my thousands. But Rick is David and he's always going to slay 10,000 to my 1,000. And it just became this bitterness that was um, kind of eating away at my soul. And I had to then do a different kind of I'd had this moment of where I was, hey, I'm an average, ordinary person. God, you can use me as you will. Then it was, but but when is it my turn? And then um, then another passage dropped into my life from God's goodness, John 21, where um, Jesus is talking to you know the disciples right before he goes back and and um, he's talking to John and Peter and says, hey, you know John's going to do this and this, but you, Peter, you're you know you're going to die. You're going to die. Mm-hmm. And Peter was like. But what about him? What about John? Jesus says, what is that to you? Hmm. What is that to you? If I let him remain alive until I come back, you follow me. And that became the thing that has made it all stay in place for me all these years is what is that to me? It is none of my business what God does in Rick's life. It's none of my business what God does in anybody's el- anybody else's life. I have a, one job. My job is to follow Jesus and whatever he does or doesn't allow is none of my business. Mm. And when I get, when those little, you know, little green envy monster sprouts in my heart, or I have a moment again of, man, he gets so much attention, man, how come blah, blah, blah. I go back to those two things. God, I am an, you made me the way I am. My life is yours. You can multiply it as a miracle or not. It's up to you. And what is it's none of my business, what God you do in anybody else's life, including my husband's. My job is to follow you. And when I have those things straight, when I know that's my identity and I'm running for that audience of one, then all of the rest is just noise. Mm. It's just noise. It's meant as a distraction. Mm-hmm. The enemy knows that's a place he can stab at my heart, but I don't fall for it very often anymore. And um, I, I always share that with um, people in ministry, because if you don't have that identity piece right. so clear cut, so defined by scripture right. and not even by what somebody tells you, but you need to have some anchor verses that go back to you and go, yep, ordinary person, I'm yours. Yep. What is that to you, Kate? None of my business. Yep. Audience of one following you. Got it. Yep. Got it. Hey, let me interrupt for just a second. If you haven't listened to our bonus episode with Kawani, she tells what it's like to be a sponsored child through compassion and the difference that it makes. Make sure you check that out wherever you get your podcasts through the Leading Simple Podcast bonus episode back in October. And we're asking you to sponsor a child today. Go to Compassion.com slash Rusty, and you get to change the life of somebody forever. Okay, back to our episode. That's so good. That's good for every one of us, pastor's wife or not. Um, Let me ask you about, because what began to happen for you is now you did have some opportunities to write some books, to speak, um, sometimes partnered with Rick, sometimes on your own. How did you know which opportunities to take and how did you know, or, you know, kind of the thought of, well, am I doing that because 
that's what Rick would do? Or am I doing that because that's what I should do? Yeah. Well, one of the things that we teach, um, Rick, he, he loves uh, acrostics. So he came up with this acrostic a long time ago called Shape. And um, we use that as a, that has also been so helpful in knowing, and shape is know your spiritual gifts, know your heart or your passions. What is it that drives you? Know what your personality is. Um, oh, your ability, sorry. Spiritual gift, heart, abilities. What are the natural talents? You know, what's your personality? And then what are your life experiences? And we really believe that God uses all five of those things to help us know what we're supposed to be doing at any given time in ministry. Mm -hmm. um, early on when we planted the church, I wore, you know, we just kind of traded the hats. He wore these hats, I wore these hats. And then as more and more people came, I was able to take off some of the hats that didn't really fit my shape, didn't really fit my spiritual gifts, heart, ability, passion, experiences, and focus more on things that were really like, man, right up my alley. They were they were things that when I'm doing those things, those are the places that I feel I'm the most effective. I've had to do both. And I think ministry is a combination of doing the things that need to be done, whether or not they fit your shape, and, and then praying for those moments and those seasons when you can specialize a little bit more. I think I just used a word that I also really believe in, and that's seasons. Mm. I, think the, I think life comes to us in seasons. And um, for younger parents, goodness, there are things that you really, I mean, you can do, but it's going to put such stress on your family. Mm. If, you, if you are working these amount of hours and you have these amount of responsibilities and yet you've got littles at home, it's going to put stress. And so adjust for the season. There's, there, there are opportunities in every season that are unique, but there's also limitations in every season mm. that are unique. And we don't like that word limit. We love the opportunity word and we love to find the opportunities in a season, but we aren't as good at recognizing the limitations and honoring them. We, we tend to just blow past mm -hmm. them. And um, I think that the wisdom, wise people in ministry will look at the opportunities in a season, balance that with the limitations of their own lives mm -hmm. and then use their shape then to know kind of what to do in, in any given season and time and place. Throughout your ministry uh, with Rick at Saddleback, you had a lot of opportunities to do team ministry, whether it was team teaching or go on an interview together or those kind of things. You know, some of our pastor's wives feel like, mm, I don't know if that's my, my strong suit. You mentioned shape, but were there ever times you felt like, you know, I, I think I probably need to sit this one out. Or, yeah, we probably need to do that together. How did you discern some of that? <laughs> Again, trial and error. Sometimes you start into something and you go, oh, that was a mistake. Why did I say yes to that? Or we should have <laughs> said no to that. Or um, I should have done that, not you, or vice versa. But I, I just, you know, I, I think it's trial and error. And when you really are, are settled into your shape mm -hmm. and you know what you're good at, you know what you're not good at, you know what you love, you know what, you know, brings uh, really joy in ministry. There was, there was a period a few years ago, uh, I mean, just a very few years ago where I thought um, it, it was after our son died um, by suicide. And I, I know we can talk about that later. I'm just using the point here is that I, really began a ministry to um, families and um, of, of children with mental illness or people struggling with mental illness. 
But I was talking to so many people who were struggling with suicidal thoughts or had died, their family members. I just found that it was so heavy. I, it just was so heavy. And I remember talking to a spiritual director and, and I said, I don't know how to sustain this. Hmm. This, I feel like this is where God has me, but it's so dark and it's, it's such a heavy cost on me. I don't know how to sustain this. And she talked to me then about um, being asking God to bring joy in, in some way. Maybe there was a shift in the way that I did ministry to people living with mental illness that would also bring joy. And for me, that has been in focusing on like retreats mm. where I can really dive in um, and, and talk to people and share as opposed to the daily kind of drip, 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 drip that, that drains me. Um, so I think that there are ways that to do ministry, but we have to be open. Sometimes we cling so tightly. You know, we find a spot where we're, we're, we feel good. We, we're shining. We feel like God's using us. We're, he's, we're effective. Um, you know, people's lives are being changed, and yet it's killing us, or it's really hard, or the joy has gone out of it. And we're so reluctant to, to release that in any way. Mm. And yet God may be wanting you to release that in a way to, to bring you into a place where um, actually there is a little more joy in, in the right. service and being open to that. Right. That's, that's such a great word. I think that what COVID did for a lot of us is, is it, it took away a lot of our usual models of doing life. And now we've got to find different ways to do things. And, and find joy. I never would have thought I would find joy from hosting a podcast. I always thought it was supposed to be on stage. And yeah. I actually really like this because like <laughs> you, I'm, I'm introverted and boy, yeah. this is great. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and I, and God is so good too. Um, but, but it has to start with, I think just having, being open, being open, being, um, I heard a podcast the other day. I love podcasts. And I heard one the other day that was talking about being hospitable, um, being welcoming to new ideas, mm -hmm. to things that we think, oh, I would never do that, or that can't be, no, no, no. But just having a hospitable heart. You can always say no to something. You can always say, nah, you know, that's not a good thing, or man, that idea is nutso, or that's like what, whatever. But just being hospitable, that's how God has the free. Rick talks about how um, it's so much easier to steer a car that's in motion than a car that's parked. So if your mind and your heart are open and receptive and hospitable to God changing things and doing things differently, I, I think we can, he, he has the freedom and it's so much easier for him to steer us because of that. You're, you've mentioned this a couple of times now, your husband's gift for alliterations and analogies. Are there ever times he comes up with one and you go, oh, come on, that's just corny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, too many to even recount. Uh, okay, okay. I, I'm good. I'm a I'm a realist. He's a dreamer, and so I'm usually the one on the sidelines going, "What? What? Come on! Okay, that one really serious. You're going to use that one? Okay. I that's, I, that's I, I think of one right now, but he talked about rabbit churches and elephant churches and in church planting or something, something to that effect. And I was I was like, that is just the dumbest illustration. <laughs> I have ever heard. Surely, surely with your brilliant mind, you can come up with something besides elephant churches and rabbit churches. So. Well, I'm just encouraged to know that he's hearing the similar things that I'm hearing at home, <laughs> which is, are you kidding me? I believe in you, uh, honey, but boy, that one, that one was a clinker. Yeah. 
that one was not good. Yeah. Um, okay, so I want to talk a little bit about, and we we've talked about this a lot, and you've you've brought so much help to people when it comes to the issue of, of mental health and awareness and those issues. You've been such a uh, a, a bright light to people, uh, specifically in ministry, who have dealt with people that have died by suicide. COVID has brought a lot of mental health issues uh, to light. And I think a lot of people are trying to figure out right now, am I, am I depressed? Am I suicidal? Or am I just discouraged? You know, what am I feeling? For a lot of us, we're beginning to discover our feelings for the first time. How do you help people and specifically those in leadership know, all right, when do I need a break? When do I need help? Uh, when, when have I crossed a point where I, I really need to sound the alarm? That's again, a really great, really great question. Um, and again, I could spend so much time on that. I, I think just succinctly, I think we need to, um, know ourselves enough to be able to distinguish the difference between I'm not doing well right now, but I'm okay. Hmm. And I'm not doing well right now. And I'm in trouble. Um, because I think COVID has left many of us feeling like we're not really doing well, if we're honest. Uh, I, I've, I've said that several times. I, I struggle with depression, low levels of depression and anxiety. And COVID certainly stirred a lot of that up for me. And, um, and we're in a, there's so much, it was not, to be really honest, it's, it wasn't fun leading during COVID, you know, I, I, I'm not somebody that has to have things fun, but I can just say all these years in ministry, and we've been in ministry since we married, and we've been married 46 years, so been in ministry 46 years, and I can honestly say that ministry, I have loved ministry almost every moment of it, but this last 18 months, it has not been fun. It has been really hard with the amount of opposition, division, the decision-making, the confusion, the chaos that has happened in our country, that's happened in churches, um, happened in people's personal lives, let alone, as you say, the grief, the loss, the uncertainty. It's just been rough. It's not mm -hmm. been fun. Um, and so I, I finally kind of admitted to myself, I said it out loud in January of this year, um, you know what? I'm not doing well. Mm. I, I'm not doing well. But then I had to immediately ask my, myself the question, but are you okay? Mm. Um, and the answer was after some really serious reflection, yes, I'm okay, but I'm not doing well. And I started saying that to a few people who, you know, asked the, how are you question? You know, somebody's in the grocery store line and they're saying, how are you? I'm not going to burden them with that big response, you know, <laughs> that your response. But, um, but if somebody's genuinely asking me, how are you? I'm going to probably say, you know, I'm not doing well, but I'm okay. But I have had some moments in which I wasn't sure I was doing okay. Um, and um, I do regularly talk to um, a, a therapist. I said that I still do. That has been so helpful, especially in the years since my son died, um, navigating life after the suicide of my child has been the hardest thing I've ever gone through. And I have needed a lot of help to, to survive that and not just survive, but thrive. 
So when others are, you know, in ministry, that that's just such an important question to be able to ask yourself, okay, I'm, maybe I'm not really doing well, but am I, am I in trouble? Am I, am I, am I sliding toward, um, um, yeah, this could maybe not turn out well. Right. And being willing to ask for help, um, letting go of any shame. I mean, that's so much easier to say than, than do, but, but particularly leaders, I think, have such a difficult time, again, with limitations, mm-hmm. with struggle, with pain, with sorrow, with not doing well, with, with recognizing that this past year and a half of leading has, has just sucked the life out of us in so many ways. What can we do to pour some life back in? And it starts with just saying, I'm not doing well, and I think maybe I could use some help here. Um, or I'm not doing well, so I'm going to shore up these places, um, until, you know, some of that sense of well-being returns. Um, there is a lot of help available. There are many, many, many uh, confidential places where you can talk and share your life and share, um, what's going on. Uh, I can't say it enough. I can't say it enough. That's such a great distinction between those two things. Um, I, I think that makes it very, very simple. Uh, which is one of the things we love on this podcast is simplifying things. And, and you have such great resources on your website, kwarren.com. Is that right? Yes. Okay. A great place to go for if you yourself are dealing with any kind of suicidal thoughts or mental health crisis issues, depression, anxiety. But then if you know somebody else who is, that you might be able to be of assistance uh, to them. Well, and the suicide uh, hotline, I, I'd love to just throw that in here because yep. somebody who's listening and uh, maybe in, even in your show notes too, but it's 1-800-273-TALK mm. for GALK, for confidential, um, you know, immediate talk to somebody. Uh, don't wait. Mm-hmm. Don't hesitate. Um, it's so your family needs you. Your children need you. Um, yeah. This world we need you. Uh, there's a T-shirt uh, I saw from an organization called To Write Love on Our Arms, yeah. and their uh, their theme a few years ago was Tomorrow Needs You, mm. and I, I I that has struck with me. Yeah, Tomorrow Needs You. Well, let's talk about tomorrow because Rick has recently said that he's beginning the retirement process at Saddleback. Um, what does life look like for the two of you beyond? being at Saddleback? I'm sure you'll still be around, but have you talked much about it? How much can you tell us? What what are you thinking about this? (laughs) I'll say it was a long, hard process to get to that place. And we we came at it differently. Shock, you know, Uh, we we approached it differently. I was a little ready before Rick. Um, I, I think that we had said all along that we were going to give 40 years of our lives here in ministry. And it wasn't, God didn't ask us to do that. That was our, at 25, that was our declaration um, that we're going to give our lives to this one place and this this community and serve God in this one place. And so 40 years would have been last June, June of 2020. But a couple years before that, we both had a sense of, I don't know why, but we're not supposed to we're not supposed to resign yet. Mm-hmm. 2020 is not the year that we're, I, we don't know why. And it actually caused a lot of conflict between us because he was more sure of that than I was. I was not sure of that at all, but he was. And so, um, you know, I 
pretty much just said, okay, all right, I'm waiting. I don't know what God's doing. I don't know what you're hearing from God. That's not what I'm hearing from God, <laughs> but okay. And, um, and then when 2020 happened with COVID and with the racial injustice and the political divide and um, to think that we would have been retiring in June of 2020 when the world was on fire and that a new pastor would have had to have been in place to help our, we, our, congr- our church wasn't meeting, you know, publicly, everything was up. How, how gracious of God to have allowed us to stay right. and, and with the credits that we have built in people's hearts and minds over 41, 40 years at that time was we got our church through that. Yeah. We got our church through that. And, and I think in a really good and healthy way. And so now that, you know, things have changed a little, the world is still, you know, not the way it was and it may never be, but it's still a little more um, on equilibrium than it was. It's like, okay, now is, now is the time. Now is the time. Right. And so we've launched that, you know, search for a successor. I don't know who it's going to be. It's not like we've got this secret list of 20 people that, um, well, right. this person, it could be, no, we're like, God, I don't know. What are you going to do here? What are you going to do? But the certainty is that God loves this people even more than we do. And that's probably our biggest requirement is we think about it. God create a love in that person's heart for the people specifically. They may be at some other church right now. And for some reason that they're like, why am I feeling love for the people of the Southback Valley? <laughs> I mean, I don't care how you do it, but just like drop this love for, um, because if they don't love our people, then, um, we don't want them. And, um, so yeah, our plan is to stay. Rick will become the founding pastor. We're not going anywhere. We're not moving. We're not. Um, so he won't be the lead pastor, but we will. We will be there. Hopefully, we'll be you know little old lady, little old man sitting on the front row going, "Yay, pastor!" Hmm. You know, eighty-five and ninety. That sounds wonderful. That's where we spent our lives. That's where we've invested our lives. So we don't want to go anywhere else. Yeah, I love that. I love that a a couple that plants a church can actually see that side of things and enjoy that side rather than feeling like they've got to leave. So that's our plan. But you know what? God God has a way of changing things. So, mm-hmm. but that's that's where we're heading. I can't see around the curve, which really annoys me. But 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 I but I do trust God for what I can't see. Oh, that's a great way to end this today. Uh, Kay, thank you so much for all that you've done, for who you are, for the legacy of integrity that you and Rick have had, for the way that you've led in so many different areas, from not just church planning, but mental health issues, for stability, for pastors' wives, for spiritual formation. Thank you. It's been a blessing. Thank you, Rusty. It's good to be with you. Well, thanks so much for listening. As always, share with a friend. Uh, That would just be so fantastic for them, especially as we move towards this holiday season. Dealing with mental health issues is such a big deal for all of us. I'd love it if you'd leave a review of the podcast or rate the podcast. That would mean the world to me. And I'd love to hear from you. Questions, guests that you'd like to have brought on, issues you're dealing with. Uh, You can just uh, DM me on Instagram at RustyLGeorge. Remember, we're sponsoring Kids Through Compassion over the next few months. Love for you to be a part of that. Compassion.com slash Rusty. And next week, we're going to have a conversation with a campus pastor who deals with college-age students. And we're going to talk about issues regarding sending your kids off to college and helping them keep their faith. So until next week, 
Make sure you keep it simple. We'll talk to you soon. Take a moment and subscribe to the podcast so you'll get it delivered every week. And subscribe to the Rusty George YouTube channel for more devotionals, messages, and fun videos. Thank you for listening to Leading Simple.